Today's show is sponsored by MongoDB. As a programmer, you think in objects. With MongoDB, so does your database. MongoDB is the most popular document database built for modern application developers and the cloud era. Millions of developers use MongoDB today to power the world's most innovative products and services, from cryptocurrency to online gaming, IoT, and much more. Try MongoDB today with Atlas, the global cloud database service that runs on AWS, Azure, and Google Cloud. Configure, deploy, and connect to your database in just a few minutes. Check it out today at mongodb.com slash atlas. That's mongodb.com slash atlas. Cloudcast Media presents from the massive studios in Raleigh, North Carolina. This is the Cloudcast with Aaron Delb and Brian Gracely, bringing you the best of cloud computing from around the world. Good morning, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome back to the Cloudcast. We are coming to you live from the massive Cloudcast studios here in Raleigh, North Carolina. Hope everybody's doing well. It's good to have you back again this week, and uh, I want to send a big shout out to um, all the folks from India who have been listening. We've noticed, uh, based on the stats, that we're seeing quite a few new uh, listeners from uh, from the country of India. So thank you very much. Welcome to the show if you're new. Um, let's go ahead and get right to Cloud News of the Week, because unlike the last couple of weeks, which have been pretty slow in terms of Cloud News, uh, things really sort of picked up. A lot of sort of interesting stories starting to bubble up as, as the year gets going, and uh, different companies and different technologies are starting to want to make their impact on 2020. So let's get started with Cloud News of the Week. First one was uh, Google bought a company called AppSheet, which sort of falls in the no-code, low-code space. Um, AppSheet was a company who had previously kind of done some integration with uh, with the Google, uh, the G Suite, if you will. So really focused on trying to take uh, help companies that really don't have specific coding skills and give them you know, very simple visual drop and, da- drop and drag kind of uh, tools to be able to build mobile applications and web applications and uh, begin to integrate with, with things like AI and ML in a very simple way. So uh, beginning of starting to see some low-code stuff, I kind of would have expected to see some other announcements from, uh, from Azure and from AWS as well, but Google begins the, the year off uh, in the low-code space. So that'll be interesting to watch. Uh, the next one, sort of a, an announcement, but you know, kind of an awareness thing. Um, Microsoft has finally ended support for Windows 7. So for those of you still on a Windows 7 laptop, or more importantly, those of you that are responsible for maintaining corporate Windows 7, um, that is no longer uh, available for support. So you know, get that moved up to uh, Windows 10 or Mac or Linux or something else, but uh, Windows 7 support no longer available. Uh, third thing I had on the list was uh, kind of a big acquisition and really a technology acquisition, kind of a cloud acquisition, but uh, not necessarily from what you'd think of as you know pure technology companies. So Visa paid $5.3 billion, that's $5.3 billion with a B, for a company called Plaid. And Plaid is uh, one of the companies behind the scenes making the technology for things like Venmo and a number of uh, API-driven uh, platforms that uh, people are building financial services on. Um, so I thought this was sort of interesting. Actually, one of the uh, announce or one of the predictions I had made on the 2020 show back in uh, late December was that we would begin to see companies like this uh, begin to emerge and uh, you know kind of kind of move into this space. So interesting to see Visa buying Plaid for 5.3 billion dollars. So uh, big move in the financial services space. It'll be interesting to see how the chips and the dominoes start to fall behind something like this. Do the banks start making acquisitions? Do we see people like Square and others do that? And then finally, I thought it was sort of interesting, um, uh, Oracle Cloud, Oracle and Oracle Cloud, made a number of uh, a number of kind of high-profile hires or that were announced this week. So uh, they acquired, well, they, they hired uh, from Amazon Web Services a gentleman named Ariel Kelman, who is now the new CMO of Oracle Cloud. 
a gentleman named Chris McGugan, who had previously been at Avaya, uh, is now SVP of uh, Services Cloud, formerly the CTO at Avaya, and uh, also hired uh, from IBM, the IBM Garage program, uh, Stephanie Trunzo. So a couple of big names from some big companies uh, moving over to Oracle to try and rejuvenate and uh, kind of bring some life into the Oracle cloud and get it up from you know where it is and, and bring some greater awareness to it. So Oracle probably spending some pretty good sized money as they've done in the past to try and uh, catch up to uh, some of the other larger cloud providers. So interesting to watch uh, some of the moves here at the beginning of 2020. So with that, I'm going to wrap up cloud news of the week, a little mix of technology, a little move, a mix of, of M&A and, and some other things. Um, I think you're really going to enjoy this week's uh, conversation. We have a chance to uh, talk to a longtime friend of the show, somebody who I know a lot of you know, some of you have interacted with. I think you're really going to enjoy our conversation. We're going to dive into not only DevOps, but uh, DevOps and, and how it's really evolved from a developer perspective. So I think you're going to enjoy this conversation and you're going to enjoy today's guest. So we're going to wrap up Cloud News of the Week and let's get to the interview. Today's Cloudcast is sponsored by Datadog, a cloud-scale monitoring service that provides comprehensive visibility into cloud, hybrid, and multi-cloud environments with over 350 integrations. Datadog unifies your metrics, logs, and distributed request traces in one platform so that you can investigate and troubleshoot issues across every layer of your stack. Use Datadog's rich, customizable dashboards and algorithmic alerts to ensure redundancy across multi-cloud deployments and monitor cloud migrations in real time. Try Datadog for yourself with a free trial and you receive a complimentary t-shirt. That 14-day trial can be found just by going to datadog.com cloudcast. That's datadog.com cloudcast. Today's Cloudcast is sponsored by UpCloud. Is your website running slow? Supercharge your hosting performance by deploying on the world's fastest cloud infrastructure. UpCloud offers superior cloud servers with advanced scalability, instant backup snapshots, an easy-to-use control panel, a fully-featured API, and a ton of integration options and management partners. Pricing starts at only $5 a month with enough performance options to host any website or app, all backed by 24x7 live in-house support. You can get started today with a free trial using the promo code CLOUDCAST at upcloud.com slash signup. That's upcloud.com slash signup with promo code CLOUDCAST and receive an extra $50 to get going. So remember, that's upcloud.com slash signup, promo code CLOUDCAST. And we're back. And folks, I hope you've been enjoying for the last couple of weeks. We've been doing some you know kickoff shows, look ahead shows for 2020. Uh, had a lot of fun talking about data and SaaS. And we've got a few more of those lined up for you here in January and February. But every once in a while, you know, you get a chance to to talk to, you know, an individual or a couple of people who you just can't turn down the opportunity to talk to them. Uh, sometimes you just, you get the opportunity to get on their calendar. And this week we are, we are blessed. We are honored to have back on our show, very, very good friend of the show, Gene Kim. Gene, it has been seven years since you've been back on the Cloudcast. It is great to have you back on. Oh, it's so great. And uh, Brian, I remember uh, with uh, uh, so fondly uh, the times we were touring the world together. Um, and so it's great to hear your voice again and catch up with you. Yeah. So um, so you, uh, we're going to talk about, you have a, a new book that's out. Um, for those of you who, I, and I can't imagine there's a lot of you, uh, but for anybody who may not know who Gene Kim is, author of uh, previously The Phoenix Project, but give folks a sense of all of the things that, that you do, you know, just kind of on an ongoing basis, if for some reason they've been in a hole and they, they don't know who you are, Gene. Uh, for sure, yeah. I've been uh, studying high-performing technology organizations since uh, 1999. And so uh, that started when I was a CTO and founder of a company called Tripwire back in the information security and compliance space. And I was there for 13 years, left in 2010. Uh, and in that uh, study of high performers, you know, the biggest surprise was how it took me into the middle of the DevOps movement, which I think is uh, – urgent and important and 
you know, it certainly explains why one of the many reasons why our space is so uh, disrupted. Uh, and so I spent six years working with Dr. Nicole Forsgren on, and Jez Humble on the state of DevOps report, that cross-population study that uh, uh, benchmarked 30,000 plus respondents to understand what high performance looks like. As you mentioned, uh, uh, was co-author of the Phoenix Project, uh, the DevOps handbook, uh, the Accelerate book. And uh, book number six is uh, the Unicorn Project, which really uh, takes place in the same universe as the Phoenix Project, uh, but instead of from the perspective of uh, operations is really from um, a senior developer, uh, which was just great fun to revisit that universe. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we, you know, I, I assume at this point, most folks uh, know about the Phoenix Project. If you if you don't go out, take a look at it. Uh, it really probably for a lot of people was the first time that they kind of got introduced to a lot of basic DevOps concepts. They got introduced to um, a lot of connecting the dots between um, sort of the Toyota manufacturing system and flow and so forth. Um, and now and now we have the Unicorn Project. And I, you know, I don't want to be the spoiler of the book. I had a chance to read it over the holidays. Uh, love the book. Um, give us the give us the cliff notes because this is there's a part of it that's an extension, right? It's sort of the the next stages of the company Parts Unlimited. But kind of give us the cliff notes of what goes on in the Unicorn Project and how it it builds on or changes from the the uh, the Phoenix Project. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so it's written um, in the same timeline as a, as a Phoenix Project. So very much in the spirit of uh, Ender's Shadow, <laughs> where instead of seeing it through the hero of uh, Ender Wigan, you get to see it through Bean. Uh, so you're seeing the story from another perspective, and so. Uh, the Unicorn Project was uh, the reason uh, for the because there's a, a ton of problems I think that still remain. You know, even if you do everything you know as prescribed in you know the DevOps handbook and the Phoenix Project and so forth, and uh, one of them is that there's all these invisible structures that are required to for for there to uh, that require that are required to get developers to be productive. Yep. Um, and uh, you know, some might call it architecture, but uh, you know, it's not highfalutin. This really is, you know, how to what extent can developers do what needs to get done? Done. Uh, the second is, um, and I love the uh, the fact that the, the last guest was uh, all about data, right? There's this other orthogonal problem that still exists, just like the DevOps movement, you know, identified that it was so hard to get code to where it needed to go, which is in production, so that customers can get that value. There's this other universe of things that are equally difficult. Uh, you know, we in order for it to get to get data from where it resides, which is in data warehouses and systems records, to where it needs to go, which is in the hands of people who manipulate and use it in their daily work, including developers, which is, um, you know, as a population, developers plus people who use and manipulate data, it's like 35 to 50% of employees in a typical company. Um, And so, you know, there's this uh, uh, problem of like, how do you make that easy, not error prone, and, you know, uh, it doesn't take six to nine months for you know these data warehouses to get you what they need and not break every report in doing so. Uh, third, there's a very strong opposition to support these kind of new ways of working. Um, and then fourth is uh, you know this ambiguity and what really we need from our leadership uh, to support this kind of transformation. So that's uh, really the uh, four things I want to explore in the Unicorn Project and really take it from the perspective of uh, not operations but uh, a senior developer. Yeah. Yeah, there, there's some, there's some really interesting aspects of this. I, I like, I don't, like I said, I don't want to, I don't want to necessarily give away the thing. I, there, there were some interesting things to me that, um, both having spent time with you, we've been on the road, you know, we've done road shows together. Um, you, you know, there are, there are people who I think probably are drawn to like the DevOps handbook or accelerate it. It kind of lends itself towards mm-hmm. kind of a, an engineering mindset. Um, and, and the, the guidance I would give to some people is, um, one of the most powerful things to me about about both the Unicorn Project, but also the Phoenix Project is, 
it's it's written a- as a story. And, and sometimes people will go, oh, well, you know, maybe it's kind of fictional and I'm an engineer. And like, I, I can't emphasize enough the importance of having some ability to to convey storytelling, right? I mean, it's, you know, it's a concept that goes back as, as long as mankind has. It's, you know, yeah. it's, you, know you, you have to be able to convince people sometimes to change, right? You have to you have to be strong-willed, you have to be convincing, and, and uh, it's as much as there are interesting aspects of the story, the the part of, you know, hearing the, the characters tell their story, fight their battles, but think of it from a story, was just as important to me as, as, uh, as you know, the lessons learned in the book. Yeah, and, you know, it's funny. Yeah, exactly right. And I think we, you know, last time we even talked about uh, how uh, stories and storytelling is the most effective way to get the mirror neurons to fire in anyone else. And, you know, for me, one of the things that... Uh, you know, my own aspirations for the book was, you know, really convey the uh, just the joy of coding and, you know, wh- uh, what it feels like when you can create and what you need to uh, what you want to create and do what you need to get done, um, done easily, <laughs> seamlessly without being dependent on, you know, tons of other people that, um, you know, you, you actually can you know do things independently, decoupled from everybody else and just how terrible it feels <laughs> when when you can't. And uh, uh, so. Yeah, for me, it was, uh, you know, given all the research in the State of DevOps Report and the Accelerate book and the DevOps Handbook, just really try to uh, show both sides of how good good is and how does it feel and how bad and sucky it is when it doesn't. <laughs> and so uh, yeah. uh, that was uh, very much my aspiration. Yeah, no, it definitely it definitely comes through. So I'm, I'm curious, um, you know, a lot of people uh, know you around the, the DevOps community, around the concept of DevOps. I mean, you, you run an event called Enterprise DevOps Summit. You've written about mm-hmm. it. Um, I, I got this sense a little bit and I, and I'm kind of curious if, if I'm on track or if I'm way off base, um, this written from a developer's perspective, there was a lot of what happens in the story about how they succeed kind of says, you know, I I need to get rid of this old operations team. The operations team is a problem to me. We'll take care of it. I mean, is there a, have you, are you redefining DevOps is, is, I mean, cause it, it felt a little bit like. It was, it was, there was, there was some frustration of like, you can't have kind of an ops team and a dev team. You just sort of have to have this dev team with ops. Like what's the, what's the oh. nuance in there that I'm missing? <laughs> well, no, it's interesting. Um, I, and I would say that's, um, uh, it's a story really about rebellion. Uh, and it's very much that the whole book was inspired by and dedicated <laughs> to all the amazing achievements in the DevOps enterprise uh, community. And, uh, you know, it's about a group of people who are trying to rebel against an ancient, powerful order who doesn't care, <laughs> who care more about themselves right. um, than, uh, you know, certainly a group of developers who just want to get things done. And I think that is really a common theme in these transformation stories told in the DevOps Enterprise Summit. Uh, these are technology leaders who have the best long-term interests of the organization at heart. And, uh, you know, the, they w- were impeded by... Uh, functional silos who just wanted to keep working the way they've been working for the last 30 years. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and and so it really does take uh, this kind of uh, uh, little rebellion of uh, people breaking the rules to get the most urgent things uh, done. And so it, uh, by no means was it meant to diminish the centralized operations group. It was really meant to serve um, or security or, or the QA manager or the VP of engineering and the VP of development. I mean, it really was, uh, I think all of them, right, were guilty of um, um, sort of uh, uh, the, the way we've always done it, TWA, yeah. Yeah, right? as opposed to, you know, make tomorrow better than today, right? You know, kind of like uh, the Google SRE, make tomorrow better than today, as opposed to the way we've always done it. So um, 
so you know, I, I would say it's not just operations; it's it's everybody, <laughs> right? Uh, and so, um, you know, in my mind, it really was a book about uh, a group of people really trying to overthrow an ancient, powerful order, yeah. an uncaring order, an uncaring bureaucracy. Yeah. Um, so, certainly didn't mean to uh, single out operations, and certainly don't mean to. Uh, uh, diminish it. I think those are things that are as important as they've ever been, maybe even more important. But it's, you know, I think uh, hey, you're in the Kubernetes game as well, right? I mean, uh, we need operations to, you know, uh, deliver things in a way very different than 10 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, no, and, it, and it's definitely a, a blurred line. I mean, it's, you know, the, the way tools have evolved and, uh, you know, capabilities have evolved, whether, you know, they're now called SRE or they're, you know, automated tools like a Kubernetes or just, you know, cloud services. Like it is, it is harder to have, you know, to say like, hey, that capability should be a person, it should be a function, it should be a group, it just built in. Like it is, it is more gray. Um, it, you know, in the in the Phoenix project, for those that read it, um, it was a lot about flow. It was a lot about, you know, there was sort of some of the Deming concepts that were in there, like I, like I mentioned earlier, some of the Toyota concepts. Um, you really introduce sort of five new ideals where um, you, you bring these five ideals together in the book, um, locality and simplicity, focus, flow, and joy, uh, empowerment of daily work, uh, psychological safety, and then finally customer focus. Um, you know, the, the one of the really nice things about when you do books and, and is you don't just write a book and kind of walk away from it. You, uh, you know, you follow up, you have a whole bunch of reference material people can dig into, <laughs> you do book clubs. But I'm curious if somebody's just kind of looking at these things and they're going, okay, um, you know, some of those feel like they're, they're technical things. Some of them feel kind of touchy-feely. Based on all the research you've had, like, do you find some of those are sort of would be low hanging fruit, easier to solve, and some of them are are harder, or you have to like, how how do you how do you think? Do you stack rank them? Do they kind of have to come <laughs> independently? How do you think about the different ideals? Yeah, I think I think these are uh, yeah. So so it's um, you know less mathematical and precise about than curing theory. <laughs> it's, sure. uh, it's um, you know, and it's really meant to convey kind of this more experiential characteristics of greatness. Um, uh, so, and I kind of view them in order, right? I mean, locality and simplicity is all about to what extent can uh, teams get done what they need done without having to, you know, communicate, coordinate, synchronize, marshal with, you know, hundreds of other people, right? <laughs> I just want to do this little de- deployment, but now I have to get 20 different teams involved, um, right? And so uh, uh, I love that metric of the bus factor, right? Uh, in the Phoenix Project, you know, um, what was the bus factor, uh, how many people need to be hit by a bus before the project service or organization in grave jeopardy? It was one, right? It was Brent, <laughs> right? And uh, yeah, I think the the metric for uh, the first ideal is, is the lunch factor. How, you know, to get something done, how many people do you need to take out the lunch? Is it, you know, the Amazon ideal of the two pizza team, or do you have to take the whole freaking building out the lunch? Right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and you know, you can only do that if things are decoupled from each other. And then you know, when you um, you know, when that happens, the outcome is the second ideal of focus, flow, and joy. You you can do the work that you love. Uh, you lose track of time, maybe even total sense of self, right? And uh, that's uh, I think why so much so many of us gravitate to technology work, right? Is that we love that feeling of creation and, and being in flow, um, and that you know that state of uh, joy and satisfaction in the work that we do. But uh, to get there, right, we need, you know, the prioritization of improvement of daily work, even over daily work itself. Uh, and so that was brought up in the Phoenix Project. Uh, and that really, in, in the Unicorn Project, it really is about how do we manage technical debt down? How do we, you know, make time so that uh, we can actually 
uh, you know, improve flow, uh, you know, fix technical debt that we've, you know, deliberately or accidentally accumulated over the past and sometimes, you know, accrued over decades. Um, and so really that notion that greatness is not free, uh, greatness is created and that can only come if we prioritize improvement of daily work, even over daily work itself. And then the fourth ideal is psychological safety, right? Innovation and improvement is impossible uh, if we don't make it safe for people to talk about problems. Um, and, you know, I think uh, one of the sort of aha moments for me was that, you know, everyone talks about the Andon cord and the Toyota production system. But, yeah, you know, I think what we don't talk about is, uh, you know, just the sense of psychological safety that must exist for people to even pull the cord at General Motors plants. They put in the Toyota, they put in the Andon cord modeled after the Toyota plants. But uh, when no one pulls it because they know that if you do, you get yelled at by the plant manager because uh, they're, you're jeopardizing the uh, daily production targets, right? So psychological safety is very important. Then, you know, fifth is uh, fifth ideal is customer focus, really prioritizing the grandest business objectives over whatever functional silo goals we have. Um, and, and so they, they kind of go in order, right? I think, uh, you know, the, uh, it really is about sort of designing our work in a way where we can get things done so that we can eventually focus on the customer and, and earn that seat at the table that we talk about. Right. Yeah. No, and that makes a lot of sense. I know, uh, you know, as, as I was reading them, they would kind of come up and you'd go, yeah, I can, I can think of examples of, of where that makes sense. And then you'd, you'd kind of watch the characters, get it, they would struggle with it, they'd break through and they would kind of come back and go, okay, this is, this is why this is so important. So yeah, no, it, 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 it I think like you said, it's not, it's not a mathematical thing. It's, it is sort of a, uh, it's a, it's a goal. It, it sets your sights for what greatness is. And then you have to sort of figure out how to struggle to, to achieve that. So yeah, it makes a lot of sense. They kind of, they build upon one another and, um, you know, you, you can be relatively successful, with a couple of them, but you kind of have to eventually get to, to all of them. Makes makes a lot of sense. Hey, um, by the way, uh, you know, uh, something that reminds me of if, uh, about the fifth ideal. Uh, so I was talking to um, – so the fifth ideal is really one about sort of core versus context. And yep. that comes from Dr. Joffrey Moore who wrote the famous Crossing the Chasm book. Uh, right. But yeah, I think the more important work that he is responsible for is something called Zones to Win, which is uh, what he points out is that – you know, especially in technology companies, th- there's a risk of context-starving core. And so core are the, the core competencies of the organization that customers our customers value, um, that um, create lasting, durable business advantage. And context is everything else. And so context may be mission critical, like payroll systems and uh, you know, our ERP systems and, um, you know, uh, you know, our email, right? Our data centers, right? They're, they're, they're important, but customers aren't willing to pay us extra for that, right? And so right. that's what makes context versus core. And, um, you know, what's interesting is that I was talking to Dr. Joffrey Moore's brother, Peter Moore, who's like equally brilliant. And he said, isn't it interesting that the fifth ideal customer focus is last? Because he said, um, until you master the first four, you you don't even belong at the table, <laughs> right? right. I mean, that right. was a... Uh, a fascinating observation that just really uh, that was one of the brilliant uh, observation. Yeah. So you know, we we talked about the ideals. They, like you said, they're they're based on a lot of a lot of data. Kind of what's you know what does greatness look like? How do you get to that? Um, I, I was I was sort of fascinated by the by the main character Maxine, who uh, you know the, the name is, <laughs> the name is sort of perfect. Her, her, you know her her name is Max, <laughs> I, I, and, and and throughout the book, you know she she was constantly like, well. You know, I've built database systems. I've done ERP systems. I used to do chipset. I've been programming. I was like, wow, she's, yeah. the, she's the world's first 25X engineer. 
and, and, there was, and there was a part of me that's, you know, you get uh, wrapped up in, in, you know, we go back to storytelling, like you do have to sort of have inspirational heroes, like people that, that you can look up to that you go, wow, they're, they're amazing. Um, but I am, I am curious, um, like in the state of DevOps report for the first few years, there were sort of tiers, right? Like, you know, good and better and high achievers. And then last couple of years, there's been this like super high achiever level. And I'm, and I'm wondering, mm-hmm. do you, do you highlight that um, because you're you're trying to drag people to a, a higher level, or are we trying to sort of highlight just how far <laughs> the really good ones have gotten ahead? Because my my worry is, you know, when and you you know you you go out to like Cleveland as much as you'll go out to the Valley or whatever. It's like I worry that the folks who aren't necessarily exposed to that every day are like, oh man, I just can't get there. The the, the mountain is too high. Is that a, is that a good thing or a bad thing, or is that kind of a a purpose reason why you you know why you why you section you, know, you kind of structure the the main character that way. Yeah, it's funny, right? Because when we talk about high performers, and now as you mentioned, the elite performers, right, who are even accelerating away from the high performing herd, right? We're talking about not individuals but organizations. And uh, I've uh, I, I think we all believe that you know there's actually no such thing as a 25x engineer, right? <laughs> uh, and, and the reason why Maxine is as awesome as she is is that is to really highlight the fact that even Maxine who is at the height of her profession, at the height of her field, right? Uh, even when she is exiled to the Phoenix Project, she cannot do anything. <laughs> right, right. right. She can't get a bill done. You know, she can't get license keys. She can't, uh, you know, she's not, um, she's not fooled into working on features like everyone else because she knows, right, through her executive experiences that features are meaningless if you don't have these basic systems that allow you to get, you know, builds and tests and deployments on demand. Right? And so, uh, you know, people are trying to say, you know, they see how good she is and they're like, Oh, come work on this feature. And she's like, no, All right now my mission is to get, to liberate these developers so they can be productive again. So that merges, merges don't take three days and, uh, or a week, right. To, to perform. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, I guess my mental model for that first third of the book, which I love, right. Is, um, it's like Robinson Crusoe or like, um, Tom Hanks in Castaway, you know, where he's stranded on a desert island. You know, even Maxine, at the height of her skills, can do nothing. <laughs> right. right. Uh, yeah. In some way, hopeless. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So. yeah, you have to work through that hopelessness and and figure out how to make step one. I mean, it's you know, take takes a week and yeah, very very. Yeah, and just to your point, right? I mean, I think that was really meant to show that you know there really is no such thing as a, a 10x engineer, right? There are systems that allow every developer to be you know a 10xer and whatever that means, right? But it does show that um, maybe the opposite is true, right? Is that if you don't have these basic systems in place to allow um, develops to be productive. No one is productive. No one, no matter how good they are. Uh, and so I just, uh, uh, in, in my mind, like Maxine is kind of a superhero. That her kryptonite are these were the crappy systems <laughs> that let no one get things done. Yeah. No. I, actually, I think that's now that I think about it. And again, this is this is why it's great to be able to sort of ask you the questions directly. It it makes a lot of sense. It 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 does highlight that no matter how individually good you can be, if the systems around you you know, don't allow you to be successful, you know, n- nothing looks successful, right? From, you know, you always have to step back from 50,000 feet, 10,000 feet. Um, it, you can have lots of, lots of individuals who could be great, but all right. you have is potential without, you know, kind of good systems and so forth. You, you um, know what's really funny yeah. though? Um, you know, one of the things I really wanted to highlight and, and was a really an aha moment in uh, writing the book was, you know, this kind of like these kind of three, levels of systems, right? You know, the, the things that developers work on, you have the features, 
right? And in most organizations, the best developers are put on the features and because you can always get budget for the features. You know, you can see the app, you can see the feature, right? Um, and then the next tier down is the systems of records and the backend systems. You know, you put the, <laughs> you put the less good developers there. And then the people who work on you know, like the CI/CD pipelines and the uh, internal platforms. You know, like uh, you know the Kubernetes cluster, right? They'll put the interns there, <laughs> right? And uh, um, the people who aren't good enough to be developers. And yet, if you look at the the tech giants, right? The Facebooks, Amazon, Netflix, Googles, right? Uh, you know, the uh, the Red Hats, the Microsofts. You know, it's it's the opposite. They put their very best engineers on the systems for dev productivity. Right. This is where you put the PhDs. This is where you put you know the people with the most experience. And then you the next tier down, you know, are the you know the platforms that every other dev team uses. And then right, uh, the ones that aren't good enough for those two, you put on features. So that kind of that that inversion of values and priorities, I just find absolutely fascinating. Uh, and something else, I just uh, I, I hope was communicated in the book that uh, you know features uh, the the ability for is so important to equip developers and create these platforms so that every other engineer can benefit from it. And, and this is the world you live in, right, Brian? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. No, and I, and I, I think that was great. And I think the, the way that you kind of communicated, you know, at the point where, you know, the development team and the lines of business were in the same room, they were talking about, you know, the problem from the perspective of the customer. Okay. How do we go and do it? Like, I, I, you know, I don't know that a lot of people necessarily get to see what, what that would actually look like. Like we talk about yeah. it a lot, but you know, just to sort of put it into a, an actual scenario, it was, was really powerful. Um, I want to ask you one last question, uh, cause I, I want to be conscious of your time. And, um, there are, there are a lot of characters in the book. Um, I know I've talked to various people who had read like the Phoenix project in, in prior lives. And they said, you know, I relate to this person. I relate to that mm. person. D- do you find that it's important to to have a lot of different characters so that different perspectives can relate to the story? It's not just, oh, those are the same mm. five or six sort of names or titles or types. You know, like, d- is that an important thing for you to do or is that just kind of a richness of story? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, I think it is important. In fact, um, you know, uh, kind of in, uh, I worked with a novel coach both for uh, the Phoenix Project and uh, for Unicorn Project. And, and one of the toughest things is, uh, and the thing that has to get done right, is the character development. And I don't claim you know to be you know, good at it or the best at it, but you know the theory is that you want the characters to be as different as possible. You want to sort of accentuate the difference and push them apart as much as possible so that you can uh, distinguish them from each other. And, and it turns out, like uh, in movie making, uh, like one of the toughest challenges is like the World War Two. Uh, team story, right? Because uh, it's very difficult to, you know, make those characters different enough so that you remember them. And so when one of them dies, you actually, you know, uh, have, you know, (laughs) you feel bad and mourn it, right? So, uh, um, uh, so, yeah, I think um, it is interesting that, uh, like in the Phoenix Project, uh, it was the hero Bill Palmer, and, you know, he had his two sidekicks, Wes and Patty, right? So Wes was the pessimist, um, Patty was the uh, idealist, right? And then John, the security person, was kind of the caricature of the security person. Yeah, same thing with the um, the Unicorn Project, and in my mind, kind of the characters really were, you know, inspired by, you know, be like the A-Team, Hogan's Heroes, um, the movie Brazil, <laughs> where the... the uh, the number one fugitive is a rogue air conditioner repairman who breaks into people's apartments and fixes their air conditioning because uh, central services won't do it for them. Right, <laughs> right? And right. so the cast of characters are really, you know, like what are the what are the minimum number of you know 
kick-ass engineers you need to be able to take on these challenges uh, and uh, that uh, they are faced with and, and be able to overcome them. So you have the uh, you have the senior ops, cranky ops person. You have the senior cranky developer. You have the uh, you know the uh, uh, Shannon, the data and, and information security specialist, and then Maxine and Kurt is like the uh, charismatic. You know, he's like face in the A team. Uh, <laughs> um, so yeah, it was just uh, um, it, it. I remember months just uh, working with my with a novel coach to try to try to kind of play with the configuration. So it was, uh, you know, compelling and, uh, and would generate that reaction of, Oh, <laughs> I know these people. Yeah, no, I, th- I think, <laughs> I think you, I think you did a very good job, not only in, in kind of diversity of people, but also just even, even if they were like nuanced, there was, there was, there was some aspect in their stories and their backstories that people could relate to. Oh, this person is very good, but they got with a bad manager. Oh, they were, you know, they were in, they were in this situation and they weren't funded. They were that, you know, so it was, there, there was always that thing where you're like, yep, been through that. Yep. Oh, I can relate to that. You know? and, and so, so one last thing before I want to let you kind of plug some of the stuff going on around the book. Um, you know, for a lot of people that know you, um, they, they know the name, they've seen you present. Um, one of the things I thought was really interesting in the book is, is you are a, super people centric person. Like you love talking to people, you love relaying stories from people. Uh, I thought it was great that, um, even, even years after the fact, you, you included, uh, the, the target is either the target or the Nordstrom Tep and Larb in the book yeah. and kind of <laughs> right, gave, right. pl- gave a plug to that group. Uh, give folks the, the 32nd, what was the Tep and Larb in real life? Oh my gosh! Yeah, the the famous technology evaluation process and the lead architecture review board uh, was very much modeled after um, uh, the amazing work of Heather Mickman, senior director at Target, right. um, who has a certificate that hung proudly on her desk for years <laughs> for abolishing Tep and Larb. And that story is very much inspired by that amazing story from uh, Target that was told at the DevOps Enterprise Summit. <laughs> and like uh, that, that uh, I think that story has generated more reactions. Uh, that story in the book has generated more reactions. They're like, where did that come from? <laughs> I know these, I know that group. And uh, uh, yeah, the, unfortunately, that's very much based in real life. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So one last thing before we go, um, what obviously, um, you know, we'll put links in the show notes to how folks can find the book and so forth, but you do a number of things around it. There's a book club, there's a bunch of resources. Give folks kind of a summary of, of because the thing I like about your books is you don't write them so they stop. You sort of write them, and then there's these conversations and 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 communities and things that happen afterwards. What are some of the things that you've got that gets us started? Yeah, so we actually have a Slack instance, um, and we call it the IT Revolution Book Club. And there's like 800 people in there right now on discussions. I'm doing Ask Me Anything where uh, I'll field 25 questions in 90 minutes. I mean, I <laughs> just did one this morning, and they are exhausting, but they're great. It's, uh, the breadth of the questions are fantastic. And so bring your toughest questions there, and uh, you know, we have a format for me to uh, be able to you know, give you answers to them. And then uh, something I just get a great deal of satisfaction around is the uh, – References, bibliographies for the reading uh, for the book. Uh, there's one in the back of the book, and I just wrote a, I think a five thousand word blog post, um, uh, giving like a paragraph of additional explanation, explanation, and uh, um, just why I think uh, all these kind of concepts in the book. Just I read a little bit more about it. So part one is up, and I'm hoping to get part two done. And, and so anyone who's interested in the concepts in the book and the specific stories that they're inspired by, um, you know, uh, there's a just look for the Unicorn Project uh, resource guide uh, on the itrevolution.com site. And then, you know, lastly, uh, and I give the, one of the things I cite most are specific presentations given at the DevOps Enterprise Summit. These technology leaders telling their heroic tales of transformation. And you know, my genuine hope is that uh, this book is, you know, properly is 
giving credit to their amazing achievements. So uh, all those videos are available on YouTube. Very cool. Very cool. We will get all that in the show notes, folks, so you don't have to write them down. Um, Gene, it is, uh, as always, it's great to talk to you. Um, hopefully we get to do this on the podcast more often. It's always good to see you in uh, in person, but thank you so much again for the time. Um, thank you for writing the book. And uh, folks, with that, we're going to wrap it up um, for Gene and for Aaron, who unfortunately couldn't be here, was very, very bummed he wanted to catch up to you with Gene. Um, folks, with that... <laughs> We, uh, we, will, we will wrap it up. And folks, thank you for listening. And we will talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to The Cloudcast. Please visit thecloudcast.net to find more shows, show notes, videos, and everything social media. 